So this morning, you know, an unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with. That's what we chant. Um, it's a daunting uh, sentence uh, when um, when we try and speak about the dharma, really. But then it's so beautiful what is offered, having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept. Each of us has this beautiful dharma upwelling, just waiting to come out. And two people this morning have accepted the invitation to bring it forward in response to the text we've been reading, what is Zen. I ask both Peter and Melissa if they would look at the book, if they would choose something that moved them, touched them, and to do short talks based on that. So I welcome them. And Peter, you are first. Please unmute yourself. Thank you. Okay. Good morning. Um, since I'm not so sure that I can offer unsurpassed um, myself, I'm going to rely largely on quoting from the book, but I want to tell you how I chose the passages I did and, uh, and why they are meaningful to me and perhaps to our Sangha. Um, many of you who have joined us on Zoom over this past year have a long history of Zen practice in more traditional settings. Uh, not so on the whole, our local West Marin contingent, many of whom hadn't practiced Zazen at all before, and some of whom have felt some aversion to the forms of Zen practice, in particular to, to bowing and chanting words they don't understand. Now, I practiced intensely, but only two years in my mid-20s, and always with some wariness about form and its meaning and authority and anything imposed. Um, so I was surprised to discover in our small pre-Zoom Sangha that I actually felt very attached to the forms that I remembered, missing them even, because John was quite appropriately careful not to impose too much ritual on a flock that might not want to go there. Um, I actually found it distracting I remember that each member who entered our church space for Zazen would do it in their own way and on their own time schedule. Um, and as we would chant the Enmei Juku Kanonjo once slowly and not even every Friday, I missed that adrenaline rush of a Sangha gathering momentum as we chanted it. Oops. Sorry, I'm having a, a phone moment. Um, um, I missed the adrenaline rush of Anga momentum as we chanted it seven times with increasing speed in unison. On Zoom, though, we're now repeating the chant three times each Friday and, and accelerating each repetition just as I like. I've missed either just hearing my voice joining with the rest of you, since the internet won't allow that. Um, and I've found myself also taking perverse prideful pleasure in not having to read the chants from a page or from the screen and enchanting exactly the words I learned 45 years ago, which are sometimes different from the ones that uh, Jean uses today. 
So I've been puzzling over my own evolution and my even rigid attachment to my version of Zen form, despite the fact that I still don't know what all the words mean. Um, and I found myself having critical thoughts, even feeling grouchy about details. You know, for instance, that on Zoom, we actually don't start uh, sitting right when we enter our, our uh, Zoom space, but chatter greetings and, you know, it's just, it's just different. And given that loose atmosphere, I find myself, I've become very casual about when I show up and, and, um, and I don't, I don't like that in myself, but I also see that the forms really create, um, create a container. So I've, I've been especially interested and grateful to read Sue's sometimes cheeky questions and Norman's down to earth answers about whether forms matter and what exactly they give us. Uh, so I wanna read some of their words. The details about Zendo etiquette can seem elaborate when you first hear them. But once you do them for a while, you realize that actually they're simple and natural and provide a way for everyone to comport themselves with a sense of calm and mutual respect. The strong feeling in a Zendo is in no small part due to the care that everyone takes with these basic rituals. When you become familiar with the chants, you have a feeling of belonging to the practice community, a feeling that you've earned. You bow to the Buddha, the Buddha bows to you. When you're bowing to the Buddha, you're not bowing to an external power. You're bowing to your true self, which is identical to the Buddha. Prostrations are countercultural to us and may be beneficial for just that reason, for overcoming cultural prejudice. They're a good way to cultivate humility and devotion, positive qualities in short supply. And we do all this together, joining our voices and our bodies, which creates a sense of community, as all ritual does. Maybe Zen can be a bit of obsessive. Oh, I've gone five minutes, but I'm going to go on for a moment more. Um, after all, forms are to facilitate practice and transformation. They're not eternal rules. But there is a point to doing things a certain way. In fact, one always does things a certain way. There is never no way. There is always some way. Zen forms make sense. They have a feeling, an integrity, a history, a depth. They facilitate spiritual development in certain directions. But yes, it's also very important not to get so stuck on them that they become counterproductive, which can happen. Thank you, Peter. You had 10 minutes, not five minutes. Oh, I had 10 minutes. Okay, sorry. In that case, I'll, uh, I'll go on a little bit more. Um, Sue asks, what would counterproductive look like? Um, and Norman answers, it would look like a very uptight Zen practitioner constantly complaining about everyone not doing it right and closed off to his or her own joy and creativity by a slavish attachment to Zen forms. So uh, sorry that I got mixed up about how much time I had because I probably rushed it more than, than was uh, useful for understanding. But um, 
anyway, I just, this is what moved me in the book was, was just seeing the forms reduced to why, uh, why should we do them? What's, what's a reason other than imposed authority? And, uh, and that's very important to me. So. Could you repeat the last line, the last quote for us? You, you kind of rushed through it. Sure. Can you say it one more time? Thank you. Which one? The answer to Sue's question or um, I'll, I'll go back to, to my favorite. And I remember that uh, one of the things that I used to, that used to um, bewilder me, but that I now really appreciate is that our old teacher Mel at the Berkeley Zen Center um, used to often repeat slowly the things that he'd said. Um, let's see. Um, about about them not being forms not being stuck. Yeah, there's a point to doing. Well, I'll I'll read the part that feels like the summation to me. There's a point to doing things a certain way. In fact, one always does things a certain way. There is never no way. There's always some way. Zen forms make sense, have a feeling, an integrity, a history, a depth. They facilitate spiritual development in certain directions. But yes, it's also very important not to get so stuck on them that they can become counterproductive, which can happen. And Sue asks, what would counterproductive look like? And Norman answers, it would look like a very uptight, crabby Zen practitioner constantly complaining about everyone not doing it right and closing off to his or her own joy and creativity by a slavish attachment to Zen forms. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, what a beautiful talk, Peter. Thank you. Let's, let's take a, a, a minute of silence between Peter's talk and the next talk by Melissa, thank you. Melissa. Hello, everybody. Peter, I was going to choose that too. I was going to talk about Zen forms and so ditto a lot of what you had to say. <clears throat> but what the heck, I decided to talk about suffering. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Norman talks on page 93. She's asking about teachers. She's asking about Zen teachers and he says, the great possibility of Zen practice is to completely trust life, to have full confidence in your life, whatever happens. Trust isn't abstract. It's more than belief or faith. It develops through living, communicating, feeling what a life brings. Through relationship with the teacher, you can develop trust in the practice, in the Dharma, in life, and ultimately in yourself, not as a limited conditioned individual, but as an expression of the truth of your life, of all life. 
So I have been working on these two ideas, having in reference to this. Um, one is the Tonglen slogan, whatever you meet is the path. And the idea that Norman has passed on to me, which is to have confidence in life and trust in the practice. And then the other day, I was very inspired by a talk uh, by Lama Rod Owens. He's a Dharma teacher and activist who works for social justice. He said, we can't heal what we don't acknowledge, but acknowledgement can be painful and takes work. So we need effective tools and safe spaces where all feel welcome. So as an aside, I thank the Sangha a great deal for this space where I do feel welcome. You've always welcomed me and I really appreciate it uh, to be able to share you know, some of my deepest feelings is such a special, incredible thing. But to go back to the talk, um, he then asks, Lama asks in his talk, how have I skipped over the mud to get to the lotus? Now, according to Dharma, it's not possible because you know there is no lotus without mud. Um, but this so-called mud, this struggle uh, that I've struggled in my life, you know, the mud in my life has been anger, unresolved grief, right? Self-doubt, craving, yada, 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 right? We all know what these are, but I'd like to like focus a little bit on craving. Um, I was raised in an environment, you know, that environment where the message was relief from suffering was through constant activity, adventure, financial reward, and lots of pleasure seeking. You know, the goal was to be happy. Now, happiness is definitely an outcome of practice too, but there's a difference between pleasure seeking and happiness because there's so much craving involved with pleasure seeking. It interferes with happiness. Like I'll give you an example. A mundane, on a mundane level. Um, I'll wake up in the morning and I'll feel some angst, you know, so, but the sun is shining and I'm going to go out on a walk, beautiful walk down a trail in Point Reyes. And this is going to help, right? So I walk out, I get on the trail, I anticipate this walk and I get out on the trail and the wind starts blowing. Okay. And I become angry at the wind. Like, how do I be angry at the wind? The wind ruined my walk, thus ruined my mood. Then I start, resent my, start to resent my mood. And I'm certainly feeling something other than pleasure. So the craving to get rid of this feeling through this walk on a perfectly sunny day had turned into like self-criticism. Okay, so Norman says, 
I often say, Zen practice comes down to this. Just don't make things worse. I know this doesn't sound very attractive or compelling, but I think there is a lot of truth to this. What makes suffering suffering is our aversion to it, our desire to escape, our childish sense that this shouldn't be happening, that we shouldn't be suffering, that we should be able to figure out how to make it stop. That attitude makes the suffering worse. But when we are willing to suffer, when it is time to suffer, when we don't mind, when we know that suffering is and always was always built into being alive in a living world, and that this is the beauty and the privilege of living, then we can take on suffering and it isn't really suffering. So I certainly can relate to this. And as my practice goes on and I gain more trust in the practice, I've been able to really deal with like my heartbrokenness in a way that I don't turn it, turn it like against myself. You know, this last year I've been feeling, and even recently been feeling profound sense of grief over the state of racial injustice and the life inequity in this country, in the world. And I used to really fear this kind of grief because, you know, it's, it's socially isolating when you feel sad, you know, when you're like on the verge of feeling depressed. I'm not talking about real depression, that's another issue. Um, and two, well, but then again, the other thing is pathologizing my sadness. Uh, and so then I go to the same place where I start resenting my emotions, you know? Uh, you know why am I feeling this way? Um, but now I start to wonder, you know, how do I meet these emotions as they are just part of the path? Uh, you know, this brokenheartedness is just an expression of my humanity. You know, instead of fearing that I don't have the resources to cope with it, I really learned to get the, to have the support, to trust in the support of my teacher and the Sangha and the skillful means that I've slowly, slowly developed and have begun to trust. Very slow process. That I can trust in this mud, you know? That's this mud that we all live in in order to, you know, to grow the lotus. So, you know, in other words, there's freedom uh, from pain, you know, not through disidentifying with it, but in accepting it, you know, as part of this deal, you know, the deal we were offered when we were given life. Um, so I thank, heavens to practice, you know, and as my faith and practice grows, my effort is growing, my effort to practice in the Zen way. Um, and I've changed over time, 
You know, I'm not as fearful that I'll be overwhelmed by my emotions. You know, I understand that pushing them away only makes it worse. I'm getting that seeking pleasure and happiness are two different things. Uh, Norman said the other day, it's important to love your life. Uh, I've been thinking about that. And for me, I mean, this means more than ever. And I just, I'm like amazed and thrilled to admit that, you know, I'm really happy to be alive. And even though, even with my feet in the mud, even with my feet in the mud, and I really appreciate you listening to me. And Sean, thanks. I wasn't really feeling great about doing this, but I knew that I, you know, that it would, again, just help my practice and, and, uh, and just be able to, you know, talk to all of you. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for being so heartfelt and vulnerable. Insightful. Both Peter and Melissa, um, beautiful talks for all of us. And I'm hoping that we could take five minutes to uh, uh, offer them some appreciation. Please uh, raise your hand if you have uh, something to offer. <laughs> 